Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson, Podcast Mike here, introducing this week's guest, Luke Darcy. Luke Darcy, you may know uh, as a player for the Western Bulldogs in the AFL. He is now a media presenter uh, across Channel 7 and Triple M. Will and Luke work together on Triple M's Hot Breakfast show here in Melbourne for a number of years. And since wrapping up on that show, Luke has recently launched his brand new podcast, Empowering Leaders, over on Listener. So you can check out Empowering Leaders wherever you podcast. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash willosophy for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to uh, these episodes a day early as well as ad-free, which is great. You can also go to tofop.com to see all of our other shows and instagram.com slash willosophypod if you want to see all of the amazing artwork that James Fosdyke does for our show, including uh, a portrait of Luke Darcy. We've had a number of former AFL players on the podcast in the past, as well as just people generally from the AFL world, including a great episode a few years ago with uh, Wayne Schwoss, and two episodes, I believe, with uh, sports journalist Narrowly Meadows. So I implore you to check those out. Scroll up in your feed. Check out a few other episodes of the podcast after you've listened to this one. And for now, without further ado, here's Willosophy with Luke Darcy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Hey, Will. Uh, my name's uh, Luke Darcy and uh, it's good to see you again, mate. We worked together for a couple of years, but I've known you for a long while, mate. It's, uh, I'm trying to think how young, uh, how young it was when I first met you, but it probably was you emceeing some sort of function uh, where we were raising money for our end-of-season trip playing for the Bulldogs, mate, which... When you think in 2021 and look back how much effort we put into raising funds and we used to give you a call regularly and go, mate, you need to come to a manpower night and be our MC. I think that might have been where we first crossed paths. So our life's changed a bit since then, mate. I think it has. And also, just by the way, I've done a lot of freebies for causes I believe in over the years. <laughs> and not a lot of those groups knocked on my door last year when suddenly all my work went away. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of... I was, I was like, where are the bushfire victims? <laughs> I thought you guys would be doing a gala for the entertainment industry during this yeah, time. We were there for you, mate. We just uh, we just needed the call and we would have been circling the wagons because uh, they were quite extraordinary times. Uh, probably um, probably for the, uh, the early 90s. And I think they were probably... Uh, cut the mustard in 2021, but um, we had some fun. Well, that's, mate, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's, uh, you know, look, I mean, I, I don't want to put in too much pressure on a, a young man. And I, I'm talking about your son, not yourself here. But you have <laughs> yeah. a, a very talented footballer son and there's been a lot of attention around, you know, his prospects in, you know, playing in the AFL. It looks realistic at the very least that he's going to become an AFL player. Like he's, he's on that path and if everything goes well for him that, you know, he's going to go into the same system that you used to exist in have you thought a lot about how different the world that he'll be going into is different to the world that you went into as a young footballer well not really until you actually ask that question and and uh you know it is interesting mate because it's such a different experience but you know at the same time you know just turned 18 two weeks ago and you look through that as the eyes of a parent he's he's the eldest of our four kids 
And you just really, you know, if you've got a kid who's passionate about something, you can't manu- – I've got this belief, you can't manufacture passion in your kids. And I've seen people try and, you know, I had a mate who um, was an ex-AFL player, was so desperate for his son to, to, uh, to play AFL football. We used to tell him that his footy boots were tap shoots and take him to Auskick and we were like, mate <laughs> – and he'd be dancing away in the goal square and, and it's like, mate, take him to musical theatre. He's born to do musical theatre and, and – and so none of what my eldest Sam's uh, is really done through any of my uh, – I'm certainly not a Demir Dockick-type uh, character in the corner um, orchestrating that. You can't do that anyway, in my, in my view. But but I just look back and so playing sport for a living was unbelievably fun. And, 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 and I think it still is. They have a lot more pressure, you know, these days for obvious reasons, the world of social media, and there's a whole lot of layers to it. But if you love what you do, you love playing – and you get the chance to play sport for the, I just look at him and think if that happens and, you know, he's on the path for that to happen. Um, what a great, if it lasts for one year, two years or 15 years, you're going to have a great, you'll meet great people. It'll be a great experience for you. Do you, I mean, again, I don't really want to focus on him too much because I mean, it's a lot of pressure for a young man, you know, going into this world regardless, but I'm interested in your perspective on it because you have a very unique perspective because your father was a champion footballer himself like you, you know, played, you know, champion level football and then your son, you know, it's, it is not just, you know, a father son thing. This is part of like generations of your family. It has been something that now men of different generations in your family have gone into the same industry. I'm just interested. I'll give it a comparison. Let's take football away in away from this. Like I come from a farming family, you know, my grandfather's a farmer. My dad becomes a farmer. My brother is a farmer. And I have quite a lot of jealousy about that sometimes in that they have this real lineage, this bond of it is a continuing story through what they have done as their jobs. But my dad never pressured me into being a a farmer. I think he would have liked it. I mean, early on until he realized how incompetent I would have been at it. But (laughs) (laughs) but what's that feeling of, you know, when your child chooses to go into the same profession as you have gone into? What does it feel like to you? Yeah, I have to admit to having a pretty emotional experience. He got to train with the club uh, back in January this year, uh, January, February this year, and I drove him down to training. And because of COVID, I probably wouldn't have gone in anyway because, you know, you want it to be his experience. In fact, I'm sure I wouldn't have. But, uh, you know, I pulled up at the front of that that ground, the Witten Oval, uh, formerly the Western Oval, and I sat there and I was like, geez, my dad started here when he was 17. He grew up in sunshine around the corner. Dad's mum, Nana Das, was a family legend. She lived in 95. She saw every game that my dad played. She saw every game that I played. And I'm dropping this kid here, you know, who feels to me like he's still five, and he's walking through that door, that same piece of grass. Our family has had so much of our history there. It was it was a really emotional thing. I was like, you know, Dad passed away almost twelve months ago to the day, and I just I thought about him. I thought, God, he would have loved, he would have loved to have been here to see this. And, and my, he was interesting. Well, it wasn't until he passed away, and you think about what you're going to say at his funeral, that I realised he never once, ever once said anything to me about a game of footy I played. He never said, geez, mate, I thought you could have run to that. But never once. Now, I played a lot of really average games, as you know, mate. You saw, <laughs> you saw some of my games, said, mate. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why your dad's a better man than I am. So <laughs> Correct. I, I wish I could say the same thing. <laughs> I, I, I suspect you gave me some feedback on some of those games. But I think what an amazing, you know, A, he, he was, it wasn't about him. It was about my – and he didn't want to – and I've been that sort of dad you know, probably without understanding, you know, six rows back at the coffee cart at junior footy, but standing next to my wife, Beck, going, 
geez, this is how I do that drill. Why don't I do that? And she's going, you're driving me mad. Why don't you say that? And I go, because, again, I don't want it to be my experience through him. It's his life and his uh, opportunity. But, uh, yeah, it, it is, mate. To, to see that happen over now three generations potentially is, uh, yeah, it is a bit of an emotional experience. Did you think about anything else when you were a young man? So when you're like 15, 16, was there other ambitions that you had in your life or did you have your eye on being a professional footballer? No, I was I was locked in, Will, uh, naively. And even from a really young age, I, I, I can remember being like five or six or however young you are that you can remember. And I think it's probably that young, you know, and asking that, people asking that question, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I had in my mind, I was going to be an AFL footballer. And I, you know, much to the amusement of my two sisters and my brother. So I think I stopped saying it because they gave it to me so much uh, at that age. But no, all the way along, I was just really, um, that was it. That was what I wanted to do. And I I felt really lucky to be able to have that as my full-time job for for over 14 years. You scaled some pretty high highs, like as a footballer, both like as a team and also as an individual. Like, it's funny when we worked together, one of my favorite things to do, of course, was to make fun of you for the year you were favorite for the Brownlow medal. I appreciated that. You know, (laughs) didn't win in the end, it turns out. Um, I want to actually ask a different question about that today, um, which is how how do you actually feel about that? Because I can imagine you have like this incredible season of football. You win, I think, the you won the like the AFL award that year, right? The the MVP. AFL MVP, is that right? Yeah. Which is the one that the players vote on. Yeah. So the, the all the other players considered you to be the best player in the league uh, that year. I shared that and with Michael Voss. We we tied for Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> reasonable player as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you tie, tie it with the Brownlow medalist Michael Voss, and you go into Brownlow night as like you know the favourite for the night, and then it doesn't work out. That's the nature of those things. There've been plenty of players in the history of the game, including some some of the people who'd be considered the all time greats, like Lee Matthews and Wayne Carey, and people like this who never won the Brownlow medal. You know, but was it? Like, what were your expectations around that night realistically? And how was it genuine? I mean, I would have been disappointed. Regardless of what you say publicly, you, you, yeah. there still must be some level of disappointment about that, right? No, there's not. Because my expectations were where they should have been, Will, which which were low. Because, um, yeah, look, I, I'd had – that was my, you know, my probably best year. But, you know, knowing the way it works, we didn't have a great year as a club. And so we made we missed the finals – and, and historically, you've got to win games to get to get votes. So I was really, um, you know, you go in thinking, you know, I've had a good year, you know, I'll pull some votes, um, you know, we'll have a few beers, it'll be a good night. What added the layer to it was the story that gave you so much joy was, was uh, and my understand, first understanding of TV was, hey, all the 10 favourites are hosting uh, something from a venue. And, and I said, no, I literally said, no, this story I've told too many times, but, Dave Barham, who was the head of Channel 10, eventually they rang back and said, mate, you're the only one of the 10 that's not hosting something. And we just bought a pub. We had partners in the pub. And uh, I just told you the story of Dad, who never said a word to me about AFL football. He was fairly behind it. I don't think he ever forgave me for, for this moment where it looks for all intents and purposes because there was no other nine other venues. It was only our venue. 
and dad's standing there at the angler's tavern. And mate, it is hilarious because, you know, mates of mine were there, clearly we were playing Bob Murphy and, and they would still for 15 years, you know, on Brownlow night, say, we're having another party for your Brownlow <laughs> Uh So the blood draining out of my face that night was when I realised that, oh no, I've been stitched up here completely. It looks like I'm hosting a party. So that looks like I thought I was going to win it. And mate, when the camera comes on you, and you're going, oh, shit. And it wasn't, oh, no, I didn't get a vote. It was, oh, no, they're going to cross back to the pub and my dad's going to be standing there and that is going to be a disaster. So, I, I, you know, that took me a while to get over, not losing the brown light. <laughs> so you have an experience like that with the media when you're playing. Uh, what makes you want to pursue a career in the media post-football? Well, mate, this is interesting as well because, uh, you know, I, I end up becoming eerily uh, like my dad. Um, he called the sport in South Australia. So he played at the Bulldogs. Um, he left, um, you know, in the middle of his career, the peak of his career, really, uh, as they did in those days for a job opportunity with an affiliate at BHP. And he went and captain coached South Adelaide over there and, so I was born in South Australia and grew up there. But he, he called the footy. And as a kid, we used to go to the Sunday equivalent of the Sunday footy show in South Australia, sit by the pie stand, meet all the great South Australian players, sit in the back of the commentary box. And so I absorbed all of him, you know, calling footy, called the cricket as well over there. And so when I started, even at a really young age, you know, seven or eight, where I wasn't getting a consistent game, I, I really in my mind had this idea that I wanted to call footy as well right from the start. And I used to call the game in my own head when I was playing, mate, which was fairly annoying. Uh, and I had to try and turn that off. You know, I'd literally be going for the ball and here comes Darcy. Darcy's going to get the ball. And, and occasionally, you know, I'd have an opponent go, mate, what the hell, you know, what the hell are you doing, mate? You've lost your mind. So I, I literally chipped away all the way through the, through my playing career. I always had this idea that I was going to call footy. And um, and so when I, you know, finished and did my knees at the end, I, I had a pretty clear pathway to, uh, to do it. Okay, so I'm interested. I was watching the Luke. Longley uh, Australian story the other night. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it's just absolutely brilliant. I highly recommend it if you haven't I seen it. I haven't yet, and, but uh, it's on my list, yeah. Uh, so he talks about the idea, you know, he's had the three championships at the Chicago Bulls. He's like had his best ever season in that final of those three years. He goes into this like 40, I think $45 million you know, five-year contract and he sees out about two years of it because he just can't, his ankle's completely ruined and he has to end up retiring. In fact, to get his payout, he has to sign a form that says, you know, you're never going to play basketball ever again, you know, so he has this moment. What's it like when your career has been built around your body? Like, I mean, it's not the only aspect of playing football, but it is a huge important aspect and it is most likely going to be the aspect of your playing career that eventually lets you down. When the thing that has been the vehicle of your success and your income and the way that you're seen in the world is taken away from you because it's your body that lets you down, what does that feel like? Yeah, initially um, devastating. You know, when I did my knee in 2005, and it's funny, you know, again, I felt like I'd just been named captain of the club uh, the week before. I was playing ruck forward, kicked six goals. And I, and I remember going home that night and allowing myself a conversation. Um, I think I might have just been engaged to Beck at that stage. And I might have even said it out loud and thought, do you know what? I feel completely in control of what I'm doing on the footy field now. And this is going to be the, next, the best period I've ever had. I remember saying it out loud to Beck or thinking it. And uh, and then that next, well, the first ever time in my life I had a slight hamstring twinge. It was touch and go with it to play that game in Geelong. First couple of balls come down on, and, and I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm on fire here. And then you twist and your knee rips and you know it's gone. And you know that means 12 months out and you just, 
you, you just the devastation is immediate. You're going from the height of where your powers are to knowing, you know, at my height and my age, that was going to be hard to come back. And then I did the rehab and never felt better because you can compare all your times in how you run. You can compare your weights. You know how you're tracking. You've got a really good idea. And the last practice game before the year, you know, they said, hey, you can play a quarter. And again, mate, I'm not um, fond of talking, but I I kicked four goals in the first quarter of our intra-club practice game. And I said, give me one more quarter. Give me one more quarter. And I get the ball, uh, kicked the first goal of the second quarter, and he's waving, going, it's time to come off. And I give me another one more minute, grab the ball, and I rip my knee again. So that means two years out of, out of the game. So, But but you know what? I had this perspective on going, how lucky are you? My my two years was getting paid really well to, to train and re- rehab. And then also, you know, I was able to spend a lot of time in the next generation in that time as well. I was captain, I couldn't play, but, you know, Will Minson was the ruckman coming up, and I really enjoyed the fact that I was hopefully able to have a positive influence on him. So, so you, you know, I sometimes think your worst day in sport, and that's your worst day in sport when you're not able to play, is still someone's best day. I'm running around the tan getting paid. I'm in a gym doing weights to get better. Now, when I came back and played that last year, I was terrible. I, my, you know, I couldn't do it. So it was easy to retire, and in some ways that made it easier. But, you know, I think perspective is pretty easy to get in sport. Board if you've got the right mindset. So I was lucky that didn't happen my first year. I would, I would never have really gone anywhere. So in the end, your perspective is pretty easy of a bit of gratitude in the end. Um, what, how did your mindset change over the years of playing football? Because like this show is very much about life philosophies and it strikes me that professional sport is an environment where you're constantly being told stories about, you know, particular philosophies, particular sayings. It's an environment where, you know, these sort of things are painted on the, you know, the dressing room walls. You know, you you look at the little sign before you run out on the field. The coach has already, always got some sort of bomb mot or saying that, you know, is defining whatever their principle is. Was there some key, you know, philosophies that were like integral to your football career? I'm not sure I could sum it up, Will, in a, in a philosophy, but I think the environment lends itself to professional and sporting environments. And certainly the world of AFL, my experience was this incredibly accountable environment. You are 100% accountable for your actions and there is nowhere to hide no matter what you do. And you're 100% feedback driven. So every minute of what you do is either recorded, measured, taped. You're going to get feedback from your coaches, your teammates, supporters, people you don't know in the street. So you've got to get comfortable and get used to being accountable and uh, and, and self-driven and want to self-improve. And if you can't cope with that, and I saw guys that they just couldn't cope with that. It wasn't for them. They were talented junior players, but they couldn't handle that intense scrutiny around performance. And I think, mate, you know, and working with you later in life, there was a bit of um, adjustment <laughs> I found getting out of that environment and not understanding other people weren't quite – as I say, with that, took me a while to get used to because you, you, a, you just wanted feedback. You know, what, what's the radio show? Like? You, what is why aren't you get why aren't I getting feedback on this? How do I improve? Um, and you're used to really direct conversations. You know, and I found life afterwards there were a lot of indirect conversations happen that I struggled with at the start. But I think those values, you know, are pretty good values in the end. And I think AFL players for me underestimate just their skill set they take into the next part, even if they haven't studied or haven't got another profession, they're pretty good people to be around because they're going to be pretty accountable for everything they do. Yeah, I, I've spoken about this several times behind your back, so I can speak oh, about it in front of your face, which is, you know, I learned a lot from you in, in that regard, from working with you, 
was one of the things I'm most impressed by is how comfortable you are at conflict resolution and direct feedback. Because I was like, in my industry, if some shit comes up, you don't directly, no, you fucking bury that shit. You talk about someone behind their back for 20 years and you call them a cunt, like constantly, you know, but like that's like you let it build and fester and like never address it. And I was like, hang on, what's this? This is weird. <laughs> And you and I had a couple of moments, and mate, I, and I had to learn as well. And I learned a lot from you, and, and a lot from working with Mick too. Around, and mate, it got me into trouble a lot too. In because you really you got to meet someone at the same level too, and and that's not taking moral high ground either, and saying, hey, that's smart to to be as direct and blunt. It was just the the ruthless in that environment, the sporting environment. You haven't got time to muck around. So when you watch the game and you see Luke Hodge out there, you know, pointing his finger, saying, "Fuck you, mate. You need to." get your man that's just efficiency it's it's not that you you know it's like mate i can't afford you not to do that yeah Uh, it's not like if they're at a cafe go fuck you get me a latte correct like there'd be more time to you got a bit more time for the latte in that situation still want to make it's a good latte for hoji and you want to do it's the right (laughs) one because that might come afterwards but but i i think the sensitivity then around going yeah look my instinct is to then always hey there's an issue let's talk about it let me pick up the phone let me sit down will let's have a conversation let's not let this linger for too long that got me into some interesting positions uh occasionally but um but i think it is who i am you asked me if i had a philosophy out of football i wouldn't change that and but i've learned to be a little bit uh, softer and a bit more sensitive and understanding around hopefully as i've as i've got a bit older as well Okay, so you you end up, uh, you know, it's the end of your football career. You know, it's been a successful fo- football career. But you're how old? 30? 30? 31, I think I was. Maybe 30, 31. 32, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the rest of your life for most people, that's for most people, that's when you're just getting a foothold in life. You know, when you, you, know, you might be in a relationship, you kind of spend a few years at a job or building a business or, you know, any of those sort of things that people do in their lives, you get to your sort of early 30s. For most people, it's really, oh, I know who I am now and this is my springing off point. And yet it always amazes me with professional athletes, unless you're like, you know, Andrew Hoy or someone, that like, you know, at age 30, what some people might consider to be the peak and most interesting part of your life is done and there is no going back to it and was that something that you considered were you aware of the fact that you still had a lot of your life to go and that um you know you wanted to kind of you know have other chapters to it yeah i I was will and i I probably may be a little bit um strange in that as i said before like i I, you know had been chipping away at the uh, the media space because you know I really saw that cha- and I was looking forward to that chapter as well and in the end you know when your body lets you down and you know you can't do what you really used to be able to do that makes that decision pretty easy but having said that I, I saw some of the most capable from the outside well set up guys that had done double degrees through their career who were ready to go straight into a corporate environment who were well who struggled for a decade after who could never get over the fact that they still weren't a professional AFL player because that was the most fun and you know one of my uh, one of my mates and he, he won't mind me quoting him he you know um, and you know too Matty Croft who played uh, is a great player for us I think Crofty's played close to a couple hundred games and Crofty used to say to him, he goes mate I, I've gone from being the biggest nerd in our environment and you know, the knitted vest that you used to hang shit on me about. I'm now the funniest guy in the engineering firm. He goes, that's not a happy place. <laughs> that's, 
that's not a lot of fun, mate. Where I'm the funniest guy, <laughs> and and uh, and I think you know, as I said to you at the start, like footy and and sports, just I found it just fun. I found that environment really fun, and trying to re- recreate that fun was always going to be hard. But yeah, I, I was looking forward to the next part of my life. It also comes with, a bit of, you know, in the end, I, I described it will when I finished the war's over. I used to say it all the time, and, I used to, and, and Beck would say to my wife would say. You're a much better person to be around now because I was selfish. Everything that you ate, every time you went to bed, I used to be ang- angry <laughs> to play well. That was my thing. I had to be angry in my mind, and so that's not a great thing when you. And it's hard to switch off when you're, you know, just relaxing after after footy. So that that was um, time to finish. I, I was ready for the next chapter of my life, and I, I've enjoyed it. Was it a, a win or loss thing as well? Was there like, I mean, were you worse? in the week with like Beck and the family after a loss than you were after a win or was it just a general attitude that you were taking into your football? Anyway? Oh, no, 100%. You, 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 the, the losses, you just were, were awful. And, the, and and probably got worse the older you got. We, we nearly won one in 97, as you know, as and I would have been 19 or 20 or something at that age. And, I, and you just thought, oh, well, that's okay because we'll win one the next year and then we're top of the ladder and we didn't. And then when it got late, you went, oh, no. On, and that's your biggest fear is that you're going to retire and you're then going to not have one one because that's the really only if that's what you're into that's the only metric of success and and that my that took me a good seven years to get get over after I retired so I moved on from not playing but then working in the media like the hardest thing so I'm then working on Channel Seven Grand Final Day let's cross down to the rooms it's fantastic Hawthorne have won their third premiership. Here's Brian Lake. We just won the North Smith medal, and I want to go. Are you fucking kidding? Are you fucking kidding? Seriously, you know, like the the jealousy, like the jealousy of that part. I mean, for those listening that don't, he played with us. He's a you know very capable player, and he leaves and goes and wins three in a row in a Norm Smith medal. So, like to control the jealousy was really hard. And clearly, you're happy for him, and you're not you're not a sociopath. But but it was like God. That's what we all wanted. We all wanted that moment when it didn't happen. It, it took a while to get over. Okay, so you go into the media. Did you you want to call football? You've been calling it in your head. But did you have any other thoughts about? like what that plan would be or was this very much a I'm going to step into this environment and I'm going to like I mean how did you start choosing jobs as opportunities started to come along what did you say yes to what did you say no to how did you make that decision so Dave Barber I mentioned who uh, ran a business called AFL Films and ran a head of sport at Channel 10 uh, you know the same guy that uh, stitched me up on the Brownlow Dave he must have felt like he owed me one because owed you one he, yeah. <laughs> He, um, He's like, he, this guy did my most successful Brownlow <laughs> night ever. <laughs> That's like- right. And he was actually brilliant uh, in, in the opportunity. So when I did my knee, I actually started working uh, for Channel 10. And I, I, I did sort of 30 games the two years I was injured and actually copped a lot of flack. There was because current players didn't work on the games while they were playing in that era. And there was, a you know, you've got ahead of yourself. Who do you think you are? Um, and I was of the view, you know, if I was um, – you know, doing a uh, you know an economics degree and working in a in a finance firm, everyone say, "Oh, what a fantastic guy!" He's, you know, he knows his group paths really well. I say, well, "This is this is the work I'm doing. I can't play for two years. I'm I'm going to do the work I want to do." So that gave me a great opportunity to work in the broadcast, work on the coverage you know, as it was happening, and and um, and it sort of evolved from there. But I didn't think much further than that. We were certainly didn't have um, breakfast radio or any any ideas like that in mind at all. It was really just working footy media. 
So when things come along, though, I'm interested in how you say yes or no to something. Like, are you a person who instinctively thinks, oh, here's a new opportunity. It's something I haven't tried before. I'll give it a crack. Or are you somebody who really carefully considers, you know, your career path and what it is that you do? Well, I think the lens that I immediately go through first and second and third is is family first. And, you know, we're, you know, parents of four kids, and so it's straight away to me through that land. How is that going to fit in to Beck and I being the best parent? And, and there's obviously two parts. That one is, you know, the uh, commercial sense around I've got to, you know, put them through school and look after them. But the other point around not wanting to miss the point of life and not be there enough too. And that balance is just always that really interesting thing to try and achieve. So, um, and then, of course, you know, a your intuition. Does, does this feel like a really good thing? Is this going to be fun? Am I going to work with good people? I love the team aspect of everything I do. Uh, am I going to bond with Will Anderson? Am I going to have fun working with that particular team? So it was probably those lenses. But first and foremost is that sort of life balance. Is it going to be a good thing for the family would be my first place to start. And have you – were you always a person who thought that you would have a family? Like was that just – something that came very naturally to you or did that sneak up on you? Because you have a proper family. Like, I mean, you know, four kids is a proper, like that's not a, you know, that's not an accident. Like any, it's almost like everyone you go, yeah, well, one kid might come along. But four's like you've, you've thought that through at least in some way. Did you always consider yourself someone who might have a big family? I hadn't overthought that, to be honest with you. And and without getting into, you know, because Beck will hate the story, but, um, you know, she was – always told that it was going to be really hard to have kids. She was from a musical theatre and a dance background. And so uh, we literally, you know, weren't of the opinion that it was um, going to have to try really hard if we did. So we weren't really thinking about it. And and she will hate this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, <laughs> she she started and she was really, really, you know, bet well and she's, she's, you know, super fit from that background. I used to, you know, personally train people when we first met. And she goes, I feel like I've got a bit of a lump in my stomach. And I was like... I, I can't, you know, well, yeah, really, I didn't take, take too much notice. And then that sort of went on. She goes, no, seriously, and we, we ended up going to a wedding. She was in wedding party. Woke up the next day and she had a pretty big night. She goes, no, seriously, I can feel. And then she's, you know, and I had noticed sort of a couple of months. So I thought, she's just she's starting to get a little bit thicker, but smart enough not to think that's a smart thing yeah. to say to your partner. <laughs> will, uh, no. You know, no matter what you think, I see, oh, that's just the, the way it is. And I never forget, I was at training and got the call. She'd gone to the doctor and she burst into tears. And mate, I, I thought she's going to ring me and say I've got cancer. That was how mm. that was how far away from that experience it was. No, I'm pregnant, and I'm five months pregnant. So, so it wasn't a long time between that and and uh, we were getting married actually a few months later. So Sam, who's just turned eighteen, was you know ten weeks old at at, at our wedding. So, uh, so mate, it wasn't overly thought out. But obviously, we did have three more. So, uh, so look, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I must have went from three to four. I don't think I spoke for two days because I was like, oh, no, this is huge. You know, we've taken on a lot here. But but once you make that, it, you wouldn't change it for anything. And, and and to me, that's why that's your life, you know, how do you do that well? And that's that's the ultimate parenting challenge, isn't it, to try and do that part of your life well. How yeah, And so how do you do that well? Did you think about it? Did you, like, was it because, you know, you'd seen role models in your own life that you based it on or did you and Beck like, talk about what sort of parents you were going to be? I'm always 
interested in if if it's just a case of you know the kids come along and you have to make it up as you go or do you have time to think about this is the sort of parent that we want to be or have regular conversations i guess around you know in this situation what sort of parents do we want to be here i love talking to other people about it because because i look at it really you know we'll um and think and not many do is that is that it's it's like to me, it's the ultimate thing you want to be good at. What's the measurement for? There is no measurement mm-hmm. for it. It's the thing that you, you know, you talk about this parent guilt all the time. If you wait too long or if, and you have make mistakes all the time or you've gone ballistic, you know, one of them, which I have done regularly, and then you wake up the next day and, and you know, no lower feeling than feeling like you've maybe got it wrong. But, you know, I think to me, it's just time. And if you put the amount of time in that we have and you're around them as much, yeah, you're going to get some stuff wrong. But I don't think you look back and go, I was absent. You know, I went and worked and did all these things away from them for the whole period they grew up. And, geez, I wish I could have that time back. So I know we won't regret that part of it. But tell you what, the mirror's up all the time, mate. You just, and I'm always going, I reckon that's your DNA trait, Beck. That's not mine. That temper tantrum, that couldn't be me, could it? That, that can't, can't be the way I behave. But uh, it's it's an extraordinary thing. I, I still every day, and, you know, our youngest Max is 10, Mate, we're lucky. They're brilliant. They're they're awesome to be around. But it's still, you know, an extraordinary thing to do. Obviously, um, you know, the last eighteen months has been pretty challenging for anyone who's got kids. Um, you know, a lot of lockdowns around Australia and around the world. People listen to this, of course, all over the world. And people have been doing things like homeschooling and having to coordinate, you know, how you organize your family without the usual social groups and environments and sports and all those sort of things that are normally part of your schedule, like. I I don't I'm not really prying too much here. I don't I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I do want to ask you about how did you talk to your kids about the fact that their life was being put on hold for a while? Yeah, it's, it was um, and still is. You know, we're, we're, I'm sitting yeah. here this morning and I've got four of them homeschooling today. So you know, it's been a long time in Melbourne. You know, you know, I, I think the numbers up to 200 days over. You know, what is it, the last 18 months? So, you know, and, and again, I, I say this honestly, mate, because part of it, and I, and I almost feel guilty saying, part of it I really loved because I didn't travel, I was home, we fly around interstate to call the footy all the time. So instead of having, you know, a couple of family dinners a week, we were having, you know, every single night this chance to sit down and chat. And, and I feel incredibly lucky you know, we've got an environment where they've got space, um, you know, they've got facilities at our house that, you know, you know, the, the, the basement's a gym, you know, they've got access to stuff that they're really fortunate to have directly across the road from us is a huge parkland. So so they're, you know, in incredible shape. Compar- you know, I've felt so much. I think imagine, you know, some of the people lived in the commission housing who've, who've got multiple kids in one room. It, it must have been a torture for people at times. So, so we've got this, you know, if you love your environment and you enjoy being around them, in some ways it was actually this awesome time. Now, that got too much. <laughs> and, I, and I look at them again, if I hear from you one more time, I'm seriously going to leave home, ride my bike and never come back a couple of stages. So you're trying to find that balance and trying to, you know, but, and also it's pretty sad too, the, you know, you know, Sam's in your 12, so you're 11 and 12. All those rites of passage things have, have gone, you know, the, the 18th birthdays, the school formals, the just that freedom you get when you get your mates and you're 18 and you can do that. Year 12's a great year. Year 11's a great year. So, you know, I've really felt for that that age group and, and the young age group as well. They've, they've had a pretty challenging time. I, I think the rituals thing is a really good thing that you've identified, which is there are so many rituals that I think 
when this all first started, you know, there was this kind of idea we all had that like, yeah, the U12s are missing their formals and stuff this year, but we'll have them in March. It'll be almost like the same thing. But we're now in a situation where that time has passed. The kids are off at, you know, studying or doing what else or jobs or at home still because, you know, they can't leave and go anywhere else, you know, but life has moved on and we are not going back to let them have those rituals. So unfortunately for like a whole generation of kids all over the country, they are just not going to have had those same rites of passage as everybody else has had. And without getting too heavy on this, mate, you know, you know, when you finish doing the radio, we're the full year of the first full year of COVID. And, and so you get to hear the anecdotal stories of people, mate, who, who aren't coping at all well. And the, the key indicators on this are terrible. You know, the, the calls to kids helpline, the calls to uh, lifeline, the, the the evidence of, you know, teenage girls who are self-harming, mate, it is it is horrible what's happening out there. And and I think it's un, it's still an untold story. You know, our leaders still get up there and say, hey, fantastic, congratulations, you're doing the right thing, everyone's done their bit. Okay, that's fine for me and you, you know, who, who I say guiltily has actually had a great period through this period in terms of being home and being around. But, God, it's left a lot of people in disarray. And, and maybe that's unavoidable. I don't know. Maybe it is. But I think not to talk about that. When you stand there and you give data, that data should be the first thing we talk about as well. Hey, we've gone back into another period of lockdown. This is what that means for a bracket of people. What are the things we can do to help some people, you know, to, to get through this in a better way? That conversation's not been had enough, Will, and, and that makes me really uh, concerned and, and upset because I think it's a social experiment that no one thinks going to end well in the end for a generation of kids. Yeah, well, and not just a generation of kids, let's be honest, like a generation yeah. of everybody. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, around the guilt of admitting how things have been hard for you. This person was like, well, I've lost this job yeah. and I lost all this money and I've been set back on this and I had to do this. And they were like saying it to me with such guilt. They were like, I can't say this to anyone else because compared to everybody else, I'm yeah. still in a good position. And I'm like, yeah, but everybody has a story. Mm. Like everybody in the country, there are rare people who've actually done better out of what has gone yeah. on. And if we say that, Nobody, because if anyone was going through any of those things individually, my relationship broke up, my yeah. blah, 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 blah. You'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. This is terrible. But because we're all going through this thing together, it's almost like you're not allowed to process the own shitty things that are happening in your life or they're not allowed to be seen as being legitimate. I think both can be true at the same yeah. time. And I get what you're saying about the communication, which is you can say, we believe this is the best strategy for everybody. And also say, but we know that there are all these un unintended side effects and here are the things yeah. that we are putting in place to help deal with these. Yeah, I, mean, I think in some ways, Will, I think you're underestimating. You, you live in the arts community and the entertainment community that has been, could not have been more affected by this. And so they're the people you speak to, you know, I know you've got friends everywhere else as well, but that community has been devastated and unfortunately, there is a sector that have done exceptionally well. And, and if you look at the research that will say the thing, lockdowns, what they're going to do, the gap's going to get wider and wider. And so, you know, Bezos is now worth $400 billion, uh, you know, oh, yeah, That's the, true. Yeah, some people did. Uh, right. You right. did pretty well, mate. <laughs> the, guy, the guys who are flying into space, they, they all did fine. <laughs> if, you, if your rebound was to go and take yourself to space, you've gone okay. But and even, you know, the, the Yeah, if you look up in the air and you see a dick-shaped <laughs> rocket, that guy did fine out of COVID. Correct, you know. <laughs> and, and so much of that money that's slushing around now, 
went to big corporations, as we know. They, they nailed it. You know, they, they scooped the pool on that and, and the targeted communities like the arts and the entertainment and the hospitality sectors, they, they needed more of that support and still do So hospitality is interesting, Harry. You're somebody whose family has had a long history in hospitality and, you know, you yourself have had, you know, a history in hospitality. You understand the industry. Um, give us an insight into what it has been genuinely like for the hospitality industry. I mean, it feels to me... And this is, I was I was just messaging Amy the other day, you know, I'm back in Sydney in lockdown doing, um, you know, some work and, and she's not here. And I walk past this restaurant that's been in our neighborhood for 15 years. Now, neither her or I had ever gone into this restaurant because on the specials board, it always had like everything had awful <laughs> in it. Like it was that sort of restaurant. But for whatever <laughs> reason, it had been... You know, a standard of this neighbourhood for at least the 15 years that we had lived in the neighbourhood. Could have been there for 15 beforehand, who yeah. knows, right? And I walked past the other day and I sent her a photo and I said, like, that that restaurant's gone. Because clearly during this time, you know, the business that they had had for at least 15 years, maybe more, like, wasn't sustainable. And I just said to her, I said, I know we kind of always, because to us it was always a bit of a joke, this restaurant. Like, it wasn't actually a business that we supported. But I suddenly felt very sad for them because clearly the reason it had been able to exist for 15 years serving fucking awful every day was it had, like, it was probably a family business with a loyal clientele with all these people who went there for, you know, their awful. And then suddenly it's just not there anymore. And to me that just seemed like a real microcosm of a, Bigger story that is being played out constantly all over the country. Yeah, well, mate, I've got the the, the similar one around the corner. You say that it's funny. There's a Malaysian coffee house around the corner from where I live, <laughs> and we play this parlor game with the kids who drive past. And how many people are in the uh, the Bintang coffee house? It's the wrong name, but and and you know, you go, oh, there's six in there today, or you know, as you go around the corner, you have a sort of. I've never been in there. I, I want to go in there, but I saw that boarded up. The other day too, and and so the Melbourne hospitality scene obviously know um, pretty well, and you know to me the culture of Melbourne and what sets Melbourne apart is that we are this incredible food culture, this events culture, and this arts uh, world that you know too well. Melbourne is we haven't got a harbour, we haven't got beaches like Sydney. You, you know, Perth is Perth, and Adelaide's Adelaide. But Melbourne, you know, you, to get into hospitality, you've got to be a little bit mad in some ways as well, you know, to open a, a cafe in a, in a strip shop, you know you're in for a hard, a hard, you know, life, you know, and you might earn some wages. and But you can go to any corner of Melbourne and you'll see brilliant food, brilliant restaurants, unbelievable, and it's got an international reputation for just brilliant cuisine. And that takes, I'm sure, you know, decades, you know, maybe 50 years to build up to that point. When you wipe it out, you know, and sure, some will survive and some will amalgamate and the bigger chains will probably take over and that more uh, processed style of food, which is in the essence of Melbourne and all those little corner bars and laneway cafe. I think we're at real risk over the next period of time of seeing so much of that wiped out that won't come back for, for generations. And, you know, A, it's every time that's that's someone's kids at school, that's someone's family, that's someone's life, that's another bankruptcy, that's another devastation that's going to happen. And, and the numbers are real. There's just not enough. You can't keep closing. We're closed again. So you still have to pay the rent. You still have to pay, you know, that staff is, is terrible. Like when you have a manager come to you and staff and say, I'm going to work for Audi, you can't say – anything apart from I understand exactly why you're doing yeah. that. And, and, but you don't replace that person who had 15 years experience in hospitality. So, 
you know, we might have seen the full data yet that's going to come out, but these establishments, you know, one of the most, um, I suppose, uh, notable stories has been the SB Hotel, which you know really well, Will. I think you might have done your first gig in the basement. Of the Did Espy. my first ever stand-up comedy gig at the SB Hotel. So for the Mullins uh, brothers to go and take the time, mate, and the money and the balls to go and redo the SB, we should be building a statue to those guys, in my view, because that takes enormous balls to go and do that, and, and there's no guarantee. And that's revitalised parts of St Kilda. Now, if, if they don't get through this, that, 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 that sends that part of the world back into a place that's not great for anyone. So, yeah, it's concerning. It's not uh, solved by any, any means. And I don't think our leaders have got it. You know, there's been sectors that have gone really well here in Melbourne. Understand that. They've got a fair bit of leverage. Yeah, if you haven't got leverage, then you're in a bit of trouble and hospitality is one of those sectors. Okay, so um, I'm interested in, like, I mean, obviously mental health is something that you are passionate about. So maybe for people who don't know, because not everybody who's listening to this will know that, like, mental health has been something that you've been, you know, interested in and, like, wellness and, you know, meditation and, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, different areas. Where did that passion come from? Like, how were you introduced to that world and that understanding of the world? I think just by fluke um, learning meditation as a young AFL footballer in the western suburbs of Melbourne, where it was a pretty random thing. When I look back and think uh, that we would be taught meditation in the western suburbs of Melbourne <laughs> as a 20-year-old, fair to say Doug Hawkins and a few of my teammates that you knew well, it probably wasn't for them in that, in that day, but uh, I, I just started it and, and continued doing it all through my footy career, when I stopped doing it at the end of my footy career, Beck was like, you've turned into a roll gold nightmare and um, a few other expletives. And, and she was like, you got to get back to doing it. And then I started to think, God, that was actually wasn't just a footy thing that was helping me. I, I, I'm getting more benefit out of that. And I really understood. And so I then became really passionate about wanting to share that to the point where Beck was like, you sound like you're selling Amway. You talk about it so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know? You need to calm down, mate, on the meditation side. But yeah, she's actually now she's a teacher. She's got into it. We we um, you know built a retreat in Bali, a health retreat uh, for her. So it just evolved out of this sort of idea that God, I feel much better. My kids are healthier. They've all learned. It's just something that um, is is really there. Effectively, you can do every day. It costs you nothing. Um, the idea of wanting to pass it on, and then I could see I didn't realise that that was something I did for my mental health. I'd never thought about it. But watching other mates of mine have all these dramas, have all these stresses, these marriage breakdowns, that was now I'm not saying that's the panacea for everything, Will, but it's part of the conversation. And finding something that fits your world in that space has been a real passion of mine. So um, yeah, I really love um, talking about it and passing it on. And you and I spoke about this a lot over the journey. So I, I'm very interested in like for those who, you know, don't understand what role it plays in your life. Like, talk them through the practicalities of your practice first. Like, you know, what does it actually look like? You know, is it in the morning? Is it at night? Is it both? How long does it take? That sort of aspect of it. But then give me a context of what you think it brings to your, like, everyday life. So the, the, the meditation I learned is mantra-based or transcendental meditation. So it's a mantra, which is a word that has no meaning. Effectively, it's a sound. So it's there's... You know, the Buddhists have concentration meditation. You can now do a guided meditation app. There's many, many forms of it. The one that I learned and that have practiced for over 25 years is mantra-based. A word with no meaning. It's a word that's specific to you. And and so I, um, the practice is traditionally 20 minutes twice a day. 
And, uh, and I get up first thing in the morning, uh, I go and sit down on the couch and I do my 20 minutes. And one of the things that got me in the early days, Will, was this um, study that's been done that saying 20 minutes of mantra-based meditation is the equivalent of four hours of best sleep. Now, either that's complete bullshit or uh, – <laughs> and I'm a bit of a skeptic, so I, I tend to lean to that space first. And then when you get it established in your practice and you go, come into breakfast radio, sleep's your friend, isn't it? And you go, how late can I sleep? If I miss that meditation in the morning and go in, I know my day's worse and I know I'm a chance to get in a blue on air with you or with uh, Eddie or whoever we're working with, but starting a day. And then I would always 20 minutes in the afternoon. And so, man, I, I, I very rarely miss. When I do, I feel worse. It generally makes me calmer. It makes me make better decisions. Um, it affects you. Like, it's not as though you can just wake up one day and say, Instead of being an angry ex-AFL player, I'm going to decide to be calm. You can't click your fingers and do that. It, this, to me, just changes your body and your nervous system in a way that has been really beneficial, and it's just part of my routine. So, obviously, there are various areas of – well, I mean, I think that every area of society can probably benefit from, you know, these sort of perspectives. But, you know, particularly I know you've been interested in, like, you know, how we – you incorporate returned service people into the community why is that an area that you were passionate about or that you're interested in yeah look i just you know was was observing and, and witnessing um the, the stats and the numbers on post-traumatic stress that's come out of uh, we've had more australians in war zones ever in our history and they've been in more combat um, situations and so there is this epidemic now of post-traumatic stress uh, and and so there isn't great research that says any medication particularly works trying to um, you know get that generation back into society and, and who we should look after along with it, you know other groups that have come back and served their country um, there is some research in America around uh, meditation and return soldiers that have um, adopted that as a daily practice and it has had profound effects on their ability to cope with normal life post uh, post their time at war. I was at a dinner in New York and Beck and I went to and, and they were raising money specifically to raise um, the funds to teach meditation to return soldiers. And so, uh, you know, with my passion back here, I thought that's something we've got to have a go. And we, and we did have a, a sample size um, up and running before COVID that was really, really positive. And look, again, I'm not sitting here saying this is the cure for everything. There is a role to play for everything in psychology and a whole broad spectrum. But God, when you've got something you can take with you, you've got a practice that you can do daily that takes you a very short amount of time to learn. And now there's, you know, there's a broad family of it too. I think it's something we should think about. It's um, become, you know, talking meditation. When I first started the radio show, Will, one of our execs, you know, so what are you into? And I, I said, mate, I'm passionate meditating. Don't say that on air. Whatever you do, do not say it on air. No one will listen to Triple M again. They'll think you're an idiot. And I said, as, as you would imagine, how about I just say what I think? And, and mate, over time, I, we would talk about it occasionally with you on radio and the amount of truck drivers that would ring in and go, hey, shit, I can't sleep. God, I'm more stressed than I've ever been before. I'd love to learn. I want to start this journey. So, you know, we're more open to it now than we've ever been. And, and you know, if it help, helps a bracket of people, it's worthwhile. Well, this is, and again, it goes to this broader conversation we have to be having as a society right now around how do we address the ramifications of the period of time we've gone through? Because if you take any sort of politics out of it, you just can't ignore the fact that the world has been through 
a major disruption for the last 18 months. And it'll be like, you know, two years plus by the time that we hopefully, you know, are back to some sort of like, you know, resuming of normal life. So there's going to be, that's the world going to war. Like you said, some people did well out of it, but a lot of people were just the soldiers who got sent to a beach and had to run up a hill, yeah. right? Like in service of all humanity. I think the analogy, I mean, without wanting to diminish the, you know, the job that people do in war zones, clearly, I'm just saying that, We've all been asked to sacrifice things on behalf of the greater good. And the the idea that you aren't then looked after about that later with some, here's, you know, some counselling, here's these techniques, here's some things that we can offer that may not fix the problems, that might help mitigate the problems is, I mean, it just feels like it is a sensible way for us to go forward. I couldn't agree more. And I think it starts with what I said before around acknowledging that the consequence of locking people in their homes, uh, taking kids out of school for extended periods of time, comes with a set of consequences. And that data is there now. Like when we know that that's not healthy for kids, you know, training a generation of kids to be on a screen all day is the opposite of what we try and do as parents. So homeschooling means they sit in front of an iPad all day, every day. And then you got to work twice as hard to get them back out to the park on their bike to catch up their mates because you've just, you know, that makes sense, doesn't it? So I'm speaking to families with kids where going really well, life was good, who are now in a really, really bad mental state. And so we've got a whole, you know, there were some previously who were really struggling who have clearly got worse. Now I think there's a whole new generation that, as you said, we need to work out how we how we fix that and how we help them pretty quickly. And this is the ridiculous thing that doesn't seem to be in the argument, you know, without spending too much time yeah. on this. I, I This is where, because you can absolutely make the argument, you know, depending on your politics, that the the sacrifice is worth it for the result that we're going to end up getting. The opposite would be worse. But if you then try to pretend that there isn't consequences to the sacrifice, that's when you're in trouble. If you don't acknowledge, we're going, we're making you do this thing that is completely unusual and is putting your life on hold and it is an enormous sacrifice for everyone. Here are some things we are going to put in place to help mitigate that sacrifice. It's ridiculous, regardless of what side of politics you're on around this, that that is not a bigger part of the conversation. Yeah, and I I think, you know, I, um, you know, got into... um, you know, an, an interesting conversation last year and a lot of interesting conversations on here last year when we finished the last year of our breakfast radio. And that was really what you what you said then was just hammering home this point. Now, whatever you agree, and, and, and there is a broad, you know, I keep using that term a lot, but the medical opinion is very divided on this. You know, there's a lot of um, medical people say that the idea of lockdowns doesn't make sense and there's a group that will say it does. So I agree, whatever you, you know, pathway you take or political pursuit, leave that alone. But the thing that we, I'm sitting here today saying we should every day be going, what does it take to keep kids at school? What does it take to keep kids playing sport or music or whatever it does that lights them up? That's the first, second and third priority. And let's get the best team of people. Let's collaborate together. Let's find whatever sophistication and nuance to sit there and say, Hey, the only thing you can do, we're going to do is weld you into your house. And we literally saw people in Wuhan being welded in their door. I mean, that, that is we're not been far off that here. I mean, I wake up today and I see our chief health officer in Adelaide, her gift to the South Australian Olympians is she's decided that she's going to give them a month in quarantine, not two weeks. They're going to do their two weeks. She's going to give them another two weeks. Thanks for representing Australia. <laughs> Thanks for your time. 
Now, you hand the reins over, and I'm going to have a crack. You hand the reins over to people with a very niche niche understanding of the world. Now, you know, I don't know Nicola and I don't, and I don't want to be disparaging, but some of the things she said are comical if they weren't so tragic. It's ridiculous. So her, her, if her KPI is to a rat, I mean, it's not a hard thing to do. All you've done is just go, I'll lock you in a hotel room. Give us some more, give us something else. Well, even if, like, I mean, this is, the problem is that, like, the, people are only speaking from one area of expertise, right? Which is absolutely fine. If you ask, like, an epidemiologist, what's the best way for us to cure this disease? They will go, well, this is the best way to cure this disease. We're just going to shut everybody in. We're going to do yeah. this. This is the best way, right? Okay, great, fine. We've decided that. But that is without context to how the rest of society operates. It is the politician's job to go, look, this is be- like, so say, for example, just to use the example, like to say that it was true, they need, the Olympians need to be locked in for another two weeks in South Australia. Like, let's just say that that is absolutely 100% true. Surely the next beat is, and because of this, here are all the other things we are putting in place for these guys and girls to make sure that those two weeks are the most fun two weeks they've ever had in their life or the most pleasant two weeks or they have access to their family or you you can't just do one without the other. You can say to people, you've all got to stay at home, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that every kid has a computer or we're going to make sure that like as soon as we can do this, here's what we've got promised to like mitigate what we're going through at the moment. And it just feels like this discussion is all one thing without that other thing. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're, we're getting into this, uh, mate. I haven't had a conversation like this uh, for a while, but, you know, to me that is the ultimate job. And it, and, and it sounds brutal and it sounds uh, blunt, but, but we have government in place as risk assessors to say, so, you know, 3,500 people die on the road tolls or thereabouts in Australia. And that's, you know, you know, and that number might, don't quote me on that because it may be slightly less or slightly more, yeah. but say it's 2,000 or So... I can fix that tomorrow, and we know that by making 30-kilometre speed limits everywhere around Australia. No one dies on the road. We know that. If you're a crazy, you're a lunatic, you know, I want to drive my car at 100 k's an hour to get back, you know, to the farm, people die. And so that's not that we're callous about road victims are horrific. It's, it's traumatic and it's horrible and we hate it. So we put advertising, say, don't drink and drive, uh, you know, look after yourself, don't speed. But at the end of the day, that's that is what it is, and and but on on this one, we're not even allowed to have the conversation because if you do, you hate old people. If you're prepared to sort of have a middle ground conversation, you know you you you're dispassionate. So I don't understand why, you know, we're not able to have this open conversation around. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, lock people in their home. Sure, that certainly achieves one outcome, but it comes with a whole heap of other bad consequences for a whole heap of other people. Why aren't we debating, you know, the merits of that? Right. And this is because I mean, you know, I, I my guess is that you and I probably have, you know, a bit of a different perspective on how all that balance goes down. But I don't think that we get anything better as a society if we can't have the conversation, because the truth is that I think we probably believe mostly the same thing, which is we're looking at the whole of society and going, how do we have a result that you know, works best for everybody. Clearly, you want to mitigate people yep. dying from this disease as much as you possibly can. Of course. But also, you just don't want to have the, you know, unintended consequences of the, you know, solution being, like the cure being worse than the disease yep. in the first place. So you have to find some balance in between. And if you get into an environment where you can't 
talk about that without being labelled as one thing or the other, then what ends up happening is it's less about the people having the argument and more the people who they are arguing for that don't get to have that argument made on their behalf. Yeah, and I think that's the the snapshot of where we've got. Everyone's reverted back to their silos. Everyone's, you're either, you're you're in or you're not. You vaccinate or you're anti-vax. There's no middle ground around any of that. And, And that... And, and and even more so, you know, if you if you're brave enough to speak publicly, <laughs> wait to be executed, you know, um, you know. So okay, so what what was that like? Because I know you, and I know that you're a, um, you know, pretty sensible dude. Like, I mean, the truth of it is that you, you know, you think out what you think. Like, you know, regardless of, you know, if we end up agreeing or not agreeing on things, like you've thought about it, you have reasoning behind what it is that you're thinking. And I think when you spoke to Daniel Andrews and you were expressing some of the things you were expressing on the radio, you would have been coming from a perspective, at least from your point of view, where you were lobbying on behalf of other people, you were asking some questions, you didn't think you were pursuing a particular political line, but you were in a conversation with someone who is a politician and there are a whole bunch of people who, you know, had decided that they were on his side and everything that he said was right. And therefore, anyone who questioned him was therefore attacking, you know, that. So you became a bit of a beacon in some people's eyes as being like, you know, I don't know. You you were thrown into politics, I guess, like into the middle of a political argument. Did you recognize that that was the case when it happened? And what was that like? Well, I didn't intend that to be the case when it happened, yeah. Will. And, and as you know, doing that show for a number of years, part of that through through Eddie is that, you know, the roll call of politicians came through our studio regularly. So I certainly didn't anticipate when we started the breakfast show 11 years ago that that was necessarily going to be part of it. But I enjoyed it. You know, like we had, you know, every uh, every politician, every prime minister, and, and, and Daniel Andrews has certainly been in that studio. You, you were in there with him many times. And so it wasn't as though he didn't know. Uh, and anyone who'd been listening to me that year all the way along wasn't surprised by the questions I was asking because I've been asking them <laughs> on a daily basis with, with, with minimum success. It's fair to say. fair to say I wasn't getting too many words in, Will, uh, uh, at the time. So um, can't imagine. I can't imagine that. But uh, but so no one was surprised. It wasn't as though I'd sat around and thought, I'm going to crowbar my way into, into the political debate here. It was just – and look, I, I was watching those press conferences like everyone and – you know, I just thought, why aren't some of these, you know, I got sick of hearing our political experts going, when are the skate parts going to open? When are the uh, swings going to be, you know, back? And they're all legitimate questions, but it felt like there were some some bigger questions that needed to be asked. Now, he's an incredibly skillful politician, Daniel Andrews, and he's controlled his message maybe better than anyone has in political history. He's extraordinary at it, but I think he probably maybe let his guard down for a moment because you didn't expect that um, in our space. So, um, yeah, I think it was being respectful but asking about alternative options that I still passionately believe. We're sitting here now uh, many, many months later and we're no closer to to an, an outcome. You know, the words have got picked up a lot. Where's the nuance? Where's the sophistication? I haven't seen any more sophistication in our approach since then now i find that staggering that we haven't as i said before surely you get the best minds together and say our kids are going to go back to school that's non-negotiable our kids are going to play their sport what measures do you put in we just ran an olympic games Eleven thousand five hundred athletes from all around the world the the equivalent number of uh, officials that came with them 206 countries 
Uh, got them all in, and guess what? The world went perfectly, and we got through. And what a moment it was! And imagine, imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have those Olympics. So use that level of thinking into things that we know. You keep kids away from school; it's a car crash, and and they've been away from school for nearly two years. Surely we're every day sitting there asking questions. What are you doing on making that happen? What else? What, who's got an idea? Come up with a solution. Let's Because I've got a few, Will, as it turns out, to get them back to school. I don't think it's that hard. Um, I, yeah. I look, if, I think if we're not having a conversation in general in society about what the future effect of having generations of young people in just such a, like, like the environment that is not raised, it's just going to affect society. Regardless of good, bad, or indifferent, and there's probably going to be all of yeah. those things. You know, there's going to be things that are improved by what happened. Like you said, some people have spent more time with their families, they've made closer bonds. There's all sorts of probably positive things, but there's going to be a whole bunch of negatives. And if we don't have a conversation about what those negatives are and how we address them, it has ramifications for generations to come. Are you surprised by the lack of conversation? Are you surprised by the lack of debate? Because I am. Well, I just think that we keep forgetting that we're all humans. That's the thing that I find amazing, that we somehow think that even the idea that we're going to just like bounce back immediately to what has been going on. Like my life has been changed forever by what has happened. And I'm in a very privileged position. Like, so I only mention this because I know that it would have been so much harder for other people, right? And I see the you've got you've got the guilt thing going there, mate. Too. But right. as you said, you're you're but you're experiencing. I can experience. see the ramifications in my own life. Like I'll work for an extra five years at the end of my life that yeah. I wasn't going to work, you know, now, which is absolutely fine, and I'll probably be very lucky enough to have the capacity to be able to do that. However, if that's what it's meant to me. What has it meant to somebody who didn't have the resources, who didn't have yep. the capability to still do some of their job, who didn't have, you know, like these structures in place, you know, who's been in a situation where they've been stuck at home with somebody who isn't kind to them, who is maybe violent to them, that, you know, kids, like it's fine for your kids in a beautiful house across from a park, but what is it like for, you know, like you said, kids yeah. in council flats trapped in a situation yep. where maybe you don't have enough food, mum and dad are angry at each other or there's yeah. not a mum or a dad or whatever else is going on. I mean, this is these are the people who you're going to be walking down the street with in three years. These are the people that you're going to trust to drive your bus or fly your plane or, you know, serve your food in a restaurant and these sort of things. Like, it is in all our benefit to make sure that those people are all well-adjusted to the world once it reopens again. Correct. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the last social divide is the worst thing that can happen and and you know the evidence would suggest that's exactly what's going to happen is that um the gap gets wider you know the the, the people with assets if you're in your our age without assets and and you've you know been wiped out in your 50s that that's that's terrifying isn't it it's terrifying for what that means for not only your family but generations of your family to come yeah intergenerational concerns are you know a, a genuine i think out of that Okay, so now you um, – enough of that. We'll <laughs> We've done enough But that was good. That was fun. That was a good conversation. I like that because it is funny because I do think that, um, you know, I, I observed obviously, you know, when all that shit was going down and how it was, you know, reported and whatever. And it was just very interesting to me because I do think that the idea that we can't have these conversations and like, you know, and even come from different perspective on these things but have – like – 
I often think with all these political debates that if we talk about the right things, what we end up realising is that we actually all agree. Like that both yeah. sides are going, I want to protect the kids. Yeah. Oh, actually, we agree. We both want to protect the kids. Yeah. We at the moment just have two really extreme ideas. Maybe there is somewhere in the middle where we can both go, oh, yeah, this would actually properly protect the kids. I agree. And losing that art is a, is, a, is a concern, but I agree. I think, yeah, happy to move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So you've, uh, done something that a lot of people do during lockdown, which is you've started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, the world needs another podcast, mate. It's really, yeah. It was crying out. There was a hole in the market for a podcast. <laughs> what made you start a podcast? What are you doing? Tell people about it. Uh, thanks mate. Um, I'll try and give you a shorter version of the story, but, uh, it, it's sort of born out of, um, something I've been working away at for a for about five or six years, and it started with um, one of my oldest friends, a guy called Matt Waterwitz. We grew up in South Australia. We played junior footy together at South Adelaide, and he was he was the gun junior footy player in my in my team. He was the captain, and uh, I was the only kid that came from sort of private school down and and uh, down south because I was father son down at South Adelaide. And he looked after me really really well. And we were draft. He was going to go to Essendon same year that I was drafted the Bulldogs, but he smashed his ankle in our last ever game together. And he ended up becoming this incredible educator, Will. And um, to the point where I'd get you know, random friends that have their kids in his class and they'd go, if you get in Mr. Waterwitz's class, it's a life-changing experience. And so uh, the, 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 the story that sort of captivated me was there was, um, as schools often do, they were managing out 25 or so kids out of the school. And Matt went to the principal and said, mate, I became a teacher because of these kids. You've got to let me look after these kids. And um, and the principal said, they're all yours, you know, absolutely. And he said, give me one other teacher, but I get total say over the curriculum. The principal said, go for it, they're all yours. And so he ended up, again, a short version of the story, he ended up just creating um, a, a curriculum based on a great story in Adelaide. Well, there's a story called The Summerton Man in Adelaide where a body... Oh, yeah, you know, I know this. Yeah, yeah a body washed up on Summerton Beach. They think it might have been a Russian spy. He was surgically scrubbed. He had Russian tattoos and an unidentified guy. And, and, and Matt had just... Had a half-smoked cigarette yeah, in his mouth yeah. when they found his body. Well, there you go, mate. You're a, you know the summoner man story. So he took the kids back to that site. He got the old detective who's obsessed with the case to come to the classroom. They started writing letters to the editor of the advertising outlet demanding the case be reopened. He just got them engaged in a way they weren't engaged before. And... He, um, the, the, what happened was those kids from being out of the school in year 10, all of them finished year 12, about 80% of them went on and did tertiary. But he said to the principal, he said, I'm not handing it back over next year to, unless you let me coach the teachers on their practice and let, and let me help them collaborate. And he, he developed this cycle around giving the kids a voice in their learning environment so the kids actually get a say in how they're, they're learning. You get the best IP from the teachers and you get the teachers collaborating the best outcome. It sounds really simple, but... I was just captivated by it because you know, my own four kids at school and their experience, it's exactly what you want for your kids. And so um, this business was born out of that and, you know, over a thousand educators in South Australia have, have been through the program and and likewise in sport, Will as well, because we both loved our sport and the coaches, they're the best self-reflectors. They want to be better teachers than ever before. So they're all about how they can improve their practice. You get 40 on a list in an AFL club and some from you know indigenous backgrounds some have gone to private schools so we end up having this incredible um connection through sport and um to the point where we were in lockdown um we had this group which i think you'll be interested in of, of the, some of the coaches that we work with because they couldn't um you know get in person 
we're working together in these little collaborative pods. So, you know, Justin Lane, the Australian cricket coach, was in a group that was facilitated by Matt, my partner, uh, with John Worsfold and Ben Rutten, who were both co-coaching Essen Football Club. Don Pike, the former Lake Crows coach, was part of a guy called Trent Robinson, who's the premiership coach in the Roosters. Will Weaver, who was uh, the Australian basketball coach before Brian Gorgian, and now he's over the Houston Royals. So these guys, you know, Justin Langer on day three of a test, he's coming out and going, having an issue here and having this collaborative group together to um, to be able to support him. You know, guys in the arena doing the same thing and, and you know, they're great ambassadors for what we do in schools with education. So, But we just had these great stories, you know, these great stories of leaders, great, you know, leadership's always been something we've been passionate about through sport and through my whole life. So it was wanting to capture these great leadership stories. So, uh, as you said, mate, the world doesn't need another podcast and I'm acutely aware of that. Uh, I enter it um, a little sheepishly, but I, I just wanted to capture these stories. And it's been great fun, mate. I really loved it. I, you know, I've really enjoyed the stories we've got so far and hopefully people enjoy listening to them. Is there a lesson out of something that you, someone you've spoken to around leadership that you yourself have taken out of the podcast? I'm always – some of my favourite moments of doing this show. I mean, this show – luckily is very well supported and I appreciate everybody who listens to it and it exists like in a world that, it, you know, it's it's its own little business, you know, like it is a show that makes some money and comes out regularly and I talk to a whole bunch of people. But the truth of it is that if we're talking about, you know, how people supported their mental health during lockdown, like this show has been incredibly important to me in the last 18 months yeah. because at least once per week when I was – basically in lockdown like everybody else really only seeing amy my partner every day for 18 months you know and particularly for me someone who was used to being out in the world talking to people to be able to sit down and have a conversation with people about life and what they think life is about and what their priorities are has been incredibly important to me so often i judge the success of an episode not based on how many people download it but by what i take away personally from the conversation is there any particular messages or, you know, kind of uh, stories, anything from the show that you particularly have gone, oh, that's unlocked something for me? No, it's a brilliant way to think about it, mate. I'm, I'm not surprised you think that way. And to be honest with you, mate, that's exactly how I've felt doing it. It's, it's you know, my notepad's getting full sitting down talking to Justin Langer as the Australian cricket coach and, you know, you talk about a whole range of things, but he starts talking about his teenage girls you know, I've got a teenage daughter and, you know, one of his teenage daughters, you know, having a boyfriend and, and, and how he's coped with that and the messages around respect, you know, it's, 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 it's all about respect. You know, we expect, um, you know, you to have respect for yourself as we would others. And that's how, you know, his value system works. You know, respect is such a big thing for him and, and, and how he operates. And, you know, Kylie Watson-Wheeler, who's the head of Disney in, in, in uh, Australasia and, and now the chairman of the Bulldogs board, you know, she speaks a lot about best decisions she's made is just when she's trusted her intuition. And whenever she's got something wrong, for whatever reason, she's clouded that. She's tried to convince herself it was the right thing to do and you end up, you know, pointing the wrong person. And, and so, I, you know, I've gone back to that a lot. Because you're normally right, you know, when your gut feels right, you, you tend to you tend to make better decisions. Or, um, you know, Matt's done some work with Ange Postacoglu, who's a great story. The Australian soccer coach just won a title in Japan. Now been appointed to Celtic in in, uh, in Scottish soccer. It's an amazing, amazing coaching story for an Australian coach to be appointed to Celtic. And he talks about will every day he walks into his organisation, and there might be sixty people. You know, by the time you've got the admin staff and the players. He does a fist bump just to everyone. So 
every person in that organisation knows that the coach has at least gone and made contact. You know, it's, it might only cost him four minutes on the way through, but it's just that, you know, that connection piece that just says, hey, I, I see everyone in the organisation. You know, I haven't got time to have a coffee with everyone today, but I hear you, I see you, and there's these little, um, you know, hacks that are there that, um, you know, I think all of us can, you know, can apply in our lives. Uh, I ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy. Like, do you have any sort of life philosophy or is there a way that you can sum up what your attitude to life is? Yeah, look, it's an interesting. Um, I haven't in as much as I, you know, I can't write you a paragraph now, but I think more than anything, mate, it's probably come through just my, my dad and his values and who he was as a person. You know, I, I can still, um, you know, 12 months after he passed, if I've got something I'm thinking about that's tricky for me, I can run without even having to think about it, the values through what he instilled in me and know how I want to behave and how I want to react and the person I want to be and sense of fairness, sense of humility, sense of um, of hopefully being kind and having some empathy along the way as well, but also being strong. You know, also, hey, this is what I really stand for and um, and this is this is who I am and, and not shying away for that as well. So I think that lens that he left really subtly is how I I try and um, act in, in everything I do. Um, I haven't written it down, but I, I think I know exactly what those values are and and how I you know want to want to act for most of the, most part of the time. Okay, well that brings me pretty naturally to my next question, which is, what do you think happens when we die? Wow, wow, mate, that's uh, that's big. Um, you know what? I probably thought about that more. You know, in the last twelve months, I'm, I'm not religious. I, uh, you know, I went to a Catholic uh, school, went to a boarding school. That's a good way to not be religious if you, <laughs> if you, if you were thinking about it. Uh, I, I think I've had an issue with hierarchy ever since, mate. It's one of my great challenges. And, I, and I, you know, my Beck always says to me, you know, um, it wasn't great for your emotional intelligence boarding school, was it? <laughs> Tears clearly weren't your friend, uh, you know, being a boarder. I, I love boarding school, by the way, and I got great mates out of it. But um, but I got this sense that there is this, you know, watching, you know, I wasn't there, but, what, you know, Dad's passing, it felt like it was the right time for him and that, and we're all united by that, you know. What and it's going to be an amazing moment, isn't it? <laughs> like, let's think about it. What happens? It's going to be, and I, I get the sense that it's 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 actually um, when it happens, it's meant to happen, and you're ready for it, and it's going to be pretty brilliant. I can't describe to you what I, you know, spiritually think about. I wouldn't describe myself as uh, overly spiritual, but um, I think those routines and daily practices, the meditation, give me that sense of, um, yeah, I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not uh, scared of when that moment comes. I think it's uh, it's the thing that unites us all. What would you hope people say about you when that day comes? Like, what what do you hope people think about when they think about you? Yeah, man, that's um, that's interesting. I hope they think that I was, you know, I've got this word in my mind, like a good teammate. I hope they think that I was that I was a good person to be around, and that I was fair, and that I I thought of others. Um, in whatever environment that I was in, that I, um, I genuinely, the thing that I am, I love working and connecting with is in groups and teams and people and other people. And um, so I hope you know, look back and people think, you know, he was a good friend. He was a, he was a, he was a good guy to be around. He was fair. 
yeah, you can have your moments with him. <laughs> I understand <laughs> that. Uh, understand it's not always a sunny day at the beach being around me, but but I think overall there was a sense of wanting to have fun and 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 be a good person to be around. I I hope that's what people you know remember me by, but um, that'll be for others. Okay, but well, this brings me to my next question though, and I'm asking you the question, so you have to answer it. But <laughs> what do you look like at your best, and what do you look like at your worst? Uh, my best, I'm all of what I just said before. My best is is just that. I, I mean, I love um, you know the, the the work that I do at the moment is. I, I get excited by, you know, this business we started with an old friend watching his success. He's gone from a school teacher to a great CEO, you know, a leader is the business that we, ALEDA, and, and, and he's just doing it. I get so excited by the impact he's having on others and, and the impact we're having, I think, in classrooms. And, you know, we're seeing this shift from leadership, which was, you know, this is probably my issue, Will, from the hierarchy where you've got, the corner office and you've got someone who's just lost their way with it, they have a massive negative impact on on people unknowingly, cause a lot of unknown pain. And we're seeing these great leaders, these collaborative you know, uh, leaders who are just changing the way leadership is. And so, yeah, that's what excites me is, is seeing you know, that change and seeing benefit in others and, and supporting others to be their best. You know, I think to me that's, that would be the thing I love the most. What's supporting someone else to be at their best would be me at my best, me at my worst, is cantankerous and um, and uh, and you know when I I reckon I've got a long fuse these days, but when the fuse goes, it's still not great. It's still not yeah. uh, the bomb's still there. It, You've just like meditated your way to a longer fuse. <laughs> can I write that down? Because <laughs> Bob Murphy sometimes when he sees me now and he, he he's aware of my you know my ability to, for the bomb to go off and he goes, "But I think you've over meditated." We need to get you back. Yeah. <laughs> You've gone too far the other way. I go, mate, there's no coming back. You don't want me back there. Uh, but it's still there, mate. And, it, and when it comes out, I go, oh, shit, you know, you got to be better than that. <laughs> it, but isn't that like a really good example of like so much of what life is about is being able to recognize when you're at your worst and then mitigate, just get like put a few more steps in between immediately getting to your worst. It's not, I don't think we, we fall into this trap sometimes that we need to, you know, somehow that we can cure all all the aspects of our personalities Mm. that we find unpleasant where sometimes it's just like, how can I mitigate not getting into that situation where I know for me, it's being late. I am incredibly, the only times in my life I find myself incredibly stressed are when I'm late. I feel that. So I just, a few years ago, I just really was like, I'm just going to leave early for everything. And if I get somewhere early, I actually put it into my process. I was like, it's great. If I happen to get there early, I've got time to go and get a coffee. You know how much I love coffee. <laughs> and so that is now my thing. Yeah. Like, you know, go to a place. If you end up being there 20 minutes early, it's great. You've got time to go and get a coffee. Yeah. Right? And change my life. Yeah. Because it's not like I am still like immediately if I get into a like late position, I'd still be stressed. I've just mitigated against getting into that position where I know that I will be stressed. But the the, the, the great reflection on you, mate, is that you care that you are late. Because I know a lot of people that just don't care that they're late and that affects <laughs> other people. And, and, and that takes me back to the... Uh, to where the bomb can go off, and uh, and again, mate, it's 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 for me actually being having that uh, side of my character was actually quite helpful playing footy sometimes. So yeah. it was part of you served your world, but then you've got to evolve and go. You know, it's not ideal being a parent. That one doesn't work that well, you know, when you're uh, when you're dealing on the family front. So 
it's nice to evolve. Family, I'll get you all to sit down. We've got leading teams in, so you're all going to have to say something that you don't enjoy about each Correct. other. Correct. <laughs> don't worry, mate. I've tried that. <laughs> um, you would have been given a lot of advice in your life, you know, particularly as a professional athlete, but then going into the media, I'm sure there are so many people who've given you advice. What I would love, if you can think of these, is the best bit of advice that you think you've got, but also is there a really bad piece of advice you got that you just later realised was full of shit? <laughs> well, that's, again, you got me thinking deeply here, mate. You, you know, it is an advice feel well that, that, you know, that we live in and, and, you know, particularly in sport. And a lot of that, I must admit, I didn't resonate the cliched stuff too often, you know, and, and sometimes the guest speaker was a great bit of fun, a bit of entertainment, but not necessarily a life-changing uh, moment. I think the life-changing stuff came for me by the behaviours of people that you were around, that you that you witnessed and that you saw and you went, you know, and, and again, I've got a, there's, there's, it's a, it's a David Smorgan saying, I'm surprised it's coming to my mind at the moment, but he used to always say when he was the president, the only time success comes before work is in the dictionary. And it must have been <laughs> one of David's uh, pearls that he, that he rolled off and it had a great impact on our footy club, David Smorgan, but, you know, I think he's right, mate. I don't think there's ever anything I've achieved that you've got for free or got easily and, and you haven't had to, to toil away at, had some frustrations, you know, gone backwards occasionally. And so I think that does apply. to. But the other probably bit of advice would be, and I know this does sound like a cliche, I've never done something that I'm really not passionate about day-to-day work. Play sport for a living, what a what a gift. To work in the media, mate, your worst day is still a really fun day. You know, calling the footy, doing breakfast radio with you, mate. I, I had a lot of – I love doing that. I still do. You know, this next chapter for me is in this, you know, collaborative leadership space. I love it. I absolutely love doing it. Um, I don't think I could ever do something that I was trying to just earn some money, toiling away and not enjoying it. So that that advice was, you know, be – if you're not passionate, you're in real trouble. Um, what about bad advice? Do you remember any bad advice? Like, is there anything that someone told you that you thought at the time perhaps was a really good idea or a good bit of advice that you later reflect on and just go, no, that was the wrong approach completely? Yeah, I once, um, uh, when I early, um, first or second year, I got a stress fracture on my foot. I came to footy unprepared and I ended up with a really bad stress fracture on my foot and, it could be, uh, you know, it could potentially be um, be uh, your career ending. And so I remember walking out and the surgeon said, these x-rays, mate, are your life. Whatever you do, do not lose it because we need to compare. If that great bone's not growing back again, we're going to have to do something serious, you know, your foot and it could be career ending. And so I, um, as people who know me, I'm renowned for <laughs> losing things. <laughs> Losing stuff. <laughs> it is the great curse. Drives people around me insane. Drives Beck around me back insane. And because I was on crutches, because I had my foot in a plastic, I put those x-rays on top of the car and I drove off. And and then it dawned on me, oh, fuck, I've lost the x-rays. And I pulled over on the side of the road and um, and I'm sort of looking in the back, maybe in the back seat. Unbeknownst to me, the car is rolling and rolling and <laughs> The car rolls and then nudges the car really lightly, right? Really lightly. And so I'm on crutches. I've lost the x-rays. Pretty low moment. I'm going, this is bad. And so I ring one of my best mates and he goes, is there anyone around? He goes, mate, you'll be fine. Just drive to the club. You'll be fine. So I drive off 
and uh, and twelve people report me to the St Kilda Police Station <laughs> for a hit run, and and the car was registered to to my dad because I'd just come over and he's like, he gets these calls. Your son's been involved in a hit run accident, <laughs> and so. It turned out there was almost no damage to the car, but not a great thing to have done. Not great advice either. To uh, no bad advice. (laughs) Bad advice. (laughs) Uh, Three more questions and we're done, mate. So, um, if you could wake up tomorrow, you don't have to do your ten thousand hours. You just wake up in the morning and you have a new skill. What skill would you love to just have? Uh, Mate, I wish I had some sort of handyman. I wish I could just you know something's broken. But the kid, the the kids have got on speed dial. Like if something happens in a house, they just look and go, "Keep me as far away from it as possible," because I have no skills. I've given up trying, which is probably the smartest thing I I did. But geez, it'd be good. I, you know, when I when I see a tradesman come over and fix a tap, mate, I stand there and just go, "That's awesome." And the guy looks at me and goes, mate, it's "Just a tap. That's what I do." It's like, mate, I'm impressed by people who can fix things. I wish I could do that. Oh, well, you, I mean, the hell that I am currently in, which is that, and I mean this in a joking way, but is because I've moved to a farm. Like, I mean, it's only, you know, 10 acres. It's not a huge farm, but like, you know, we have a little bit of land and we're out in the middle of the country. And so I spent the first 17 years on my farm, on the farm. And for 17 years, my father tried to teach me like everything that you need to know to run a farm. And the whole time, like I just ignored it going, I'm never going to need to know any of this shit. And now I'm living on a farm and wish I knew all that shit. Like the other day, like a fence was broken and the horses were going to get out. And I was like, the amount of times that my dad showed me how to fix a fence. Like, and I was just like, nah, do not need this information. So did you ring him? Uh, so I've been doing a pretty good job of YouTubing things because particularly in lockdown, you can't, you couldn't have tradies out and yeah. stuff like that. So I spent a week I mean, I had the time, but I spent a week trying to fix the washing machine and I watched like about, I reckon, eight YouTube tutorials and I like, I, you know, took it apart, put it back together, like was changing things, was balancing things. Eventually, like after a week, could not get it to work properly and I was just like, okay, I've got to call a tradie. (laughs) And this tradie came out to the house and it turns out the movers when they move your washing machine, there's this these bars that they put in to stop it from like jiggling all over the place when it moves and they'd forgotten to take the bars out. And so I had done everything else apart from just taking these bars out of the back that I was meant to do. So I am like you, but I am trying to struggle to re-engage with the previous move that might have known about these things. Very good. Um, okay, two more questions. I have on my desk here, it's as close as I have to an inspirational saying, I guess. Um, I'll explain to you what it means to me, but then I'll get you to answer this question in whatever way you would like to uh, answer it. So um, it says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And the way that I use that is mostly in relation to work. So basically, I like to imagine a project already successful. And so instead of like putting together a project that you go, how could I put elements in place that would make this successful? Imagine that it's already successful. Now, what do you want it to look like? What do you want your day-to-day to be? Who do you want to work with? Like, what does your day look like? What are you going to have to read to research it? All these sort of things, yeah. right? That's that's how I use that question. But that does not mean that, that I just want you to answer it in however you like to answer this. Uh, Luke Darcy, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? 
Yeah, it's really uh, a pertinent question, Will, because it's what I'm trying to do now, really. And, um, you know, I love playing uh, sport for a living. It was a great chapter. I always saw media as a as a second chapter and I always saw wanting to find, you know, a vehicle for something I was really passionate. And it was always going to be something I'd get my teeth into, you know, in the in the business and commercial world. So yeah, what we're what we're trying to do and I'm passionate about is is this this shift in leadership, uh, this world of collaboration we're trying to create. The business is is a leader and um it's a A-L-E-D-A, it's sort of a, a, a play on an old Scots word, which means sort of to teach and to grow. And it's with a great old friend. So it feels like it's successful already because we've had a massive impact in schools and a massive impact with kids. And But I love the idea because I feel like everyone, if you're in a work environment, you know, you're really lucky. You, you've been out, of, not lucky, you've, you've been brilliant at what you do, but you do it for yourself most of the time. And most of the things you do, you don't have to worry about. Um, too many executives, or or it's it's independent. But a lot of people, if their environment they create, they don't feel like they've got a voice. Can, we spend a lot of time at work. We spend a lot of time, you know, in that environment. And if it's not a healthy environment, and we don't feel like we've got a voice, and we're not feel like we're collaborated with, you take that home to your family. It affects your life in lots of ways. So whether it's in schools and education, or the arts, or or industry. You know, I'd love to look back and think we're able to shift the needle a little bit and help people on their ability to understand you can have a positive impact on other people. You don't have to be the CEO. You don't have to be um, the captain. If you're in an environment, how do I impact other people positively? I'm really passionate about that. It's the thing I've loved in all the work environments I'm in. How do I positively impact others? So if I could get that to be the successful I want, I'd, um, I'd be into it. Uh, one final question and we're done. Thank you for doing this, by the way. This has been fun. It's been nice to catch up, but it's also been nice to have a conversation like this, which you don't get to have. Even even when we, uh, you know, work together, you know, every day, you don't necessarily get to have big, long, in-depth conversations at that time in the morning. It's been good. Um, uh, so I have a time machine. I can take you to the future. I can take you to the past. Um, I, I don't mind. Um, you can visit yourself. You can visit a part of your life. You can change something, but you can completely ignore your own life. Go to some time in history that you've always wanted to see or sometime in the future. Where would you go on a trip on a time machine? Well, mate, I'm thinking about, um, you know, where you started. And, and again, this is not um, – I'm, I'm breaking my own uh, sense here a little bit because, um, you know, you mentioned Sam who's 18 and, and, and look, you hope he's – not there yet, but you hope he gets drafted and he's, you know, he's passionate about it. I'd go, you know, if he was able to play one game, you know, I'd pick up, I'd pick up dad and I'd be sitting there and I'd watch that first game with him if it happened. And, um, you know, and I might even grab Nana Das as well. Yeah. And I think that would be just a magic, uh, a magic thing. It's a lot of, a lot of our family history in one place. And I know it's the club that you supported all your life uh, as well. So, that would be pretty special if if you could make that happen for me, mate. That'd bring a smile to my face. Yeah, that would be amazing. And I, I, you know, fingers crossed for Sam. And I look forward to you know supporting him and occasionally berating him in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Uh, brilliant. Thanks, mate. Good to catch up. 